Occult Confessions. Oh. Occult Confessions. Is brought to you. Oh, dude, I don't know that shit. You don't? I mean, not off the top of my head. Was it? Occult Confessions is brought to you, Commercial 3, by the generous support of our patrons. Please visit occultconfessions.com today to visit... And click on Donate. And click on Donate to keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. Is that it? Yeah, that was it. I agree with megachurch pastor and televangelist Joel Osteen. Sometimes. Wait. Don't click over to that serial killer podcast you listen to when you get sick of us. Not yet. Give me a chance to explain. Osteen is the pastor of the Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, one of, if not the largest church in America, operating from what used to be a sports arena, the Compact Center. Osteen inherited his ministry from his father, John, who founded Lakewood in 1959 as a non-denominational church after breaking with the Baptists. According to Joel's telling, members of his father's Baptist congregation became frustrated when his father turned to a message of hope and prosperity after his wife gave, gave birth to a severely disabled little girl. Joel's sister grew to become a healthy adult, and Lakewood grew into a large church with a television ministry. Joel took over after having only preached once to the congregation six days before his father's passing in 1999. Under his leadership, the congregation grew to more than double the listening audience of this podcast, with a still larger television audience, and Joel sold millions of copies of his Christian-inspired self-help books, beginning with Your Best Life Now, Seven Steps to Living at Your Full Potential. Now, the reason I say that I agree with Austin is complicated, of course. To begin, Austin is arguably the least offensive of the prosperity gospel preachers and, in fact, denies any association with the prosperity gospel despite its obvious influence on his message. He takes no salary from the Lakewood Church, making his millions from speaking engagements and book sales, and he never asks for money during his services, perhaps because his popularity keeps the donations rolling in by the millions anyway. If I had his kind of patronage, I'd never mention our Patreon account either. There's also an infectious positivity about Austin's preaching. Unlike the theocratic and punitive elements of the Christian right, he gives no time to fire or brimstone or condemnation of one sin or another. Rather, he talks consistently about problem-solving through belief in God. There is something appealing, marketable, and even logical about his approach to religion. It's also the case that the prosperity gospel in general is actually not so foreign to an occult-minded audience. It's inspired by the New Thought Movement, a powerful influence on New Age culture that I've always had a soft spot for. Ralph Waldo Trine's In Tune with the Infinite has been on my shelf for years, and Trine's words are both uplifting and encouraging. New Thought, dating to the 1880s, was largely absorbed by the religious spiritualists, with whom, as long-time listeners know, I spent three years researching and writing my dissertation. Among its tenets is the principle that our mental states or thoughts manifest as our reality. This has been rephrased as the law of attraction, that we attract to ourselves what we put into the world, 
and that we become whatever we preoccupy ourselves with. It's also a fundamental element of the New Age secret. So, while the prosperity gospel often goes in directions that offend my spiritual and religious sensibilities, it is rooted in an idea that I generally accept, and that Austin is a fairly reasonable promoter of this new thought principle. Whether or not he's aware that this is, in fact, a new thought principle. Today, on Occult Confessions, why I agree, and why I also disagree, with Joel Austin's take on the prosperity gospel. My name is Dr. Robert C. Thompson, coming to you four colds deep in this uh, cold season, well and truly vaccinated against everything but colds, and so that's what my children bring home. I'm here with Sam Steen, Shepherd of the Verst, backed by popular demand. Sam, I want you to know, people have been saying, we want more Sam. Are you serious? I'm absolutely serious. It's Sam Steen, not Sam Osteen. I'm, no relations. <laughs> wow, that's very flattered. Uh, I love this. Am I allowed to cuss? I cuss a lot in my yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You I love can. this shit. Like, I do. I, <laughs> I work behind a bar. Like, most of the conversations I have are like, see the football game last night? <laughs> did and you see the football game last no, night? No. No, neither did I. I'm reading books about this stuff. You know, like, I'm a nerd. But I'm happy to be here. I'm happy you guys are happy. I'm very flattered. Thank you. All right, Sam, let's pledge it out. We, we the, the members, members of the, the secret order of alchemical actors do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. We want to el- uh, oh well uh, open up our our uh, uh, order of confessors there, Sam, with any sounds that please you. Okie doke. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that went through. <laughs> you want to try it again? Yeah, I can always... I'll, I'll punch that up on, on post. Uh, we have Eric McSee, new to our patrons. Also, Escan, uh, uh, Gmilius79, and Melly Mel. Yeah, Melly yeah. Mel. <laughs> Delighted. Uh, reminder for reviews, we do constantly collecting those stars. We cannot get enough stars. We are still chasing after that unnamed conspiracy podcast that yes is real it's not just my way of teasing you so drop us some stars give us some love keep us competitive in we the podcastosphere all right sam close this up uh we're just gonna it's closed now <laughs> uh sam when i say the words prosperity gospel what comes to mind um a lot comes to mind um <laughs> First, there's like a shriveled feeling in like my spine. <laughs> Everything um, shrinks inside of you. <laughs> um, another feeling, I get like a familiarity uh, feeling with it. Um, it is not uncommon in the Christian spaces I had occupied before leaving to hear, you know, uh, things adjacent to prosperity gospel, maybe not outright stuff like that. Um, but ultimately, it just leaves sort of like, I guess, a disappointment. I think when it now that I've like matured and left the faith and like have looked into textual criticism and other kind of academic approaches to scripture, the historical Jesus, I think it's a disappointment to me because it seems so counter and so harmful to those who are like impoverished mm. when the faith was such a such a remedy and such a I think a place where impoverished and downtrodden people could come like that's where the churches started. And one of the first criticisms levied by some of our Greek philosophers at the time was that 
they would go, oh, I forget the philosopher said this, but he basically was like, it can't be true because you got a bunch of poor people and prostitutes believing in it, yeah. you know? And so like, it's a bit of a disappointment, you know, to me to see how far it's come from a very cool historical route in an oppressive oppressed group to like this. Hey man, if you believe hard enough, you get a private jet. Yeah. I mean, I mean, if you think of the United States, mm -hmm. the church, you know, the black church. Yeah. I mean, it, it's always been a sort of divided thing that, I mean, I mean, at the beginning of the country, you can think about, you know, uh, slave culture blending these, this syncretic blend of Christianity with the traditional mm -hmm. religions. But, but then the upper echelons of, of America, like the founding fathers, were they Christian? Were they deist? Yeah. You know, some of them not so Christian. So no. I think that's even true in our own country here. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, you're going to have, you're going to have a lot to say today, Sam. I know it. Ooh. I'm going to give you lots I like reread a lot of chapters <laughs> of books I've been reading. I'm ready for oh, this. Oh boy. So in 1936, Right smack in the middle of the Great Depression, speaking of poverty, New Thought author Charles Fillmore wrote his book Prosperity. Here's a bit of what Fillmore promised at a time uh, when many people were in desperate straits. The spiritual substance from which comes all visible wealth is never depleted. It is right with you all the time in response to your faith in it and your demands on it. It is not affected by our ignorant talk of hard times, though we are affected because our thoughts and words govern our demonstration. The unfailing resource is always ready to give. It has no choice in the matter. It must give, for that is its nature. Pour your living words of faith into the omnipresent substance, and you will be prospered though all the banks in the world close their doors. Turn the great energy of your thinking towards plenty ideas, and you will have plenty regardless of what men about you are saying or doing. These ideas continue uh, in Austin's preaching in the 21st century when he says, and I'm quoting here, the battle is in your mind. If you are defeated in your mind, you've already lost the battle. Think plenty, have plenty. Mm. Austin encourages his parishioners, fans, and readers, and, and I don't necessarily believe these are all the same groups. I, I think Austin has fans outside of Christianity, mm -hmm. even who like to read his, his work as sort of self-help, uh, to take an optimistic attitude toward their lives and hope for better things rather than settle for or accept less. I, I mean, I'll say my own mother, who is not, not at all a church-going woman, doesn't identify as Christian, uh, but she said, yeah, Joel Austin, uh, you're reading Joel Austin? He's, he's all right, she said. Really? Yeah, yeah. She That's... knew his name, and she thought he was okay. I know he's like he was like a household name, especially like early two thousands. Um, he's he's less relevant now with sort of your like millennial Gen Z Christians. Yeah, um, yeah. They they look to more like hipper kind of guys <laughs> who are peddling the same snake oil, but you know they just uh, they wear Yeezys. I'll be interested. So, what? Who who would be? Do you have examples? Um, put yeah, you on the spot. Uh, this is like a hot take. Um, okay. Uh, because it, it's not like directly out like spoken i mean when you look at like hillsong church mm -hmm. um that group out of australia um and then like uh stephen furtick um out of uh he's in the south i forget what state specifically but um these are one's a mega church kind of group and they run uh colleges and they have like campuses all around the world it's the the hillsongs where the kardashians went and where justin bieber went and, and that's then, it's had a spectacular fall from grace yeah yeah and then uh Fertix, just this guy who he makes music um and his music's really popular but they often preach that kind of like mindset it, it, what's interesting is I'm sure a lot of people who are chronically online, like myself, mm -hmm. um, 
well they know like this hustle culture we see yeah, online yeah. that's like you know like grind set and it'll be like you know like it'll be like grind set culture on instagram and it's like a quote that's like change the way you think change the bands you make you know it's like uh, stupid like it is like that mindset stuff and it's very similar um like people my age really like that but it's because it's not overtly like they can oh you they can have their cake and eat it too like it's not overtly prosperity gospel but you know they're wearing like their flannel shirts over their hoodies with their skinny jeans and their yeezys and they're talking like <laughs> you change your mindset and your relationship with god you know they instead of mindset it's relationship with god you, you know, we can start seeing success in our life. And, like, that was very similar from, like, the young kids who were preaching in Young Life when I was still a part of Young Life. To expect plenty, yeah. material plenty of God. Yeah. At the same time. And, but at, this is where I find prosperity also really difficult. They would say that. But if you weren't doing it, they would either say, well, obviously, you're not, you don't have a strong enough relationship with God. Or, hey, you really shouldn't expect material things from God. Mm. You know? Mm-hmm. Shouldn't expect, but it could happen yeah, for you. It could. So back to Austin, when we are knocked down, he says, or feeling deprived or depressed, we should, in his words, get up on the inside, which is sort of what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Change your mindset. Forced down physically, we must mentally lift ourselves up and expect God's favor because, because, says Austin, God favors those who believe God will raise them up. Belief is central to advancement. Keep the faith, but also persevere. Many of Austin's examples describe people who strive in the face of adversity. A single mother putting herself through college and becoming the principal of the school where she'd started out as a cafeteria worker. An aspiring executive walking confidently into a job interview despite being less qualified than other candidates and getting the job because of his attitude. The biblical David choosing to stop weeping and rally his men after their enemies had destroyed their homes and stolen their families. God wants us to stand tall, and if we believe, we can achieve. Hmm. Including God in this formula may seem uh, superstitious or perversely materialistic. Yeah. Yeah. But viewed properly, in Austin's way, it actually amounts to to a healthy dose of humility. And I actually accept this. Follow me on this, Sam. My success depends in part on my positive attitude and willingness to reach to accomplish my goals. This I think everyone can agree. Mm-hmm. I, I, whether we like it or not. Now, your positive attitude is not going to you know, cure cancer. Or, or, or pull you out of poverty. Right, all on its own. Mm-hmm. But if you have a negative attitude, that's sort of like... Sure, certainly ain't helping. Yeah, it's not going to... So you might as well. Yeah, I think uh, people who occupy my area of the political spectrum would be unwilling to accept that because we like to view things in a systemic way. But yes, I would agree with that. I, I, yeah. I wouldn't say that's like the only thing you need to do, but... I would say a positive attitude can go a long way. Positive communal attitude. Like, that's, I would be on board with that. Doesn't hurt. Uh, and, and working at it. Mm-hmm. If you're not going to work at it, yes, the system can reach down and help you out mm-hmm. and keep you from suffering, theoretically, but. Or the system can reach down and keep you there. Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah. Or leave you be mm-hmm. and leave you to the, to the wolves. Um, but anyway, you're not going to become a CEO if you don't try. Uh, yeah. yeah. I guess. <laughs> Anyhow. Uh, But it also depends on a healthy dose of divine intervention. So here's the humility. Mm -hmm. You can have a positive attitude and you can try. But Austin says, 
if you're successful, that's not just you. That was God too. I would agree. That's humility. That's that's something. Um, that's very common. I think in Christian circles. I don't think that's that particularly radical no. amongst evangelicals. No, that's. No. I would agree with that's a humble way of thinking. And I'm I'm really okay with the sentiment personally. Mm-hmm. I like it. Austin does well to acknowledge this. While his talent, personally, and ambition have certainly played a role in his and Lakewood's success. He was also born the wealthy white heterosexual son of a rich and successful pastor. There was no guarantee that he could succeed his father as the pastor of Lakewood, but he only had the opportunity because of his God-given circumstances. Mm-hmm. There's my CEO. Like, yeah. you, yes, you might be born, you know, from a family of Yale graduates and you go to Yale and you dirt definitely have advantages. But, you know, to become the lead pastor of the Lakewood mm-hmm. and have, you know, hundreds of thousands of, you know, millions of followers... Uh, on the TV, that's some of your own personal uh, initiative. The stars certainly aligned for Austin, and he worked to make the most of it. In his article on Austin, the scholar Peter Mundy points out that Austin actually undercuts traditional American dream ideology with this thinking by crediting material success to God, rather than the individual's own hard work and work ethic. Your work is only going to get you so far. Yeah. You need a little God. Or we might say a little luck if we want to get uh more occulty or or more uh atheistic about it would you say that maybe prosperity gospel came about as a remedy for maybe the realistic like difficulty with the american dream i think it's a nice response you know like we we sit there and we love to say like if you work hard pull yourself up because i call this like bootstrap theology Mm -hmm. you know like you pull yourself up by your bootstraps but like i've been working like for since i was 15 i'm not anywhere <laughs> like I, I do not have a lot to my name and there's a lot of people like that a lot of like you know blue collar guys out there who like have worked pretty damn hard their whole life and you know maybe the american dream isn't a dream for everyone well and luck plays a role and, and if we're really talking about the original american puritan work ethic mm-hmm. you expect nothing from god you yeah. work your butt off and you are grateful to be breathing mm-hmm. and you are grateful to have a job to do to keep mm-hmm. you out of the devil. Yeah. You don't expect yeah. any kind of anything materially or in this world. Your mm-hmm. reward is entirely in the next world. Mm-hmm. In theory, if God likes you. If God likes you. <laughs> yeah. It's a whole other thing, though. So here's Sam, some of Sam's favorite people, the existentialists, Oh, might rephrase Austin by saying that we make the best of the circumstances handed us to us by fate. This message is strongest when Austin talks about patience. God solves our problems and rewards us with his gifts on his own time. Austin asks, are we to wait with a good attitude and expectancy, knowing that God has great things in store? Or are we going to be upset, frustrated, and muttering complaints? If you know you have to wait anyway... Why not make a decision to enjoy your life while you're waiting? <laughs> or, in the immortal words of French existentialist Albert Camus... My favorite. My boy. Say this with me, Sam. We must imagine... Sisyphus, Sisyphus happy. happy. Yes. <laughs> right? Is yeah. that not Camus? Is yeah, Austin that's not... That's literally just Camus if he was a theist. Yes. He's, you know, he's like... channeling Camus. There are times in his preaching when Austin is honestly not far from Camus. Camus has the advantage, at least with me, because Camus believes Sisyphus should be happy with no expectation of his circumstances changing. He must be happy pushing that boulder up the hill, knowing that it is absurd, and will roll back down the hill again at the end of the day. Happiness in the face of the absurdity of life's projects is the point. But Austin's way isn't especially weak by comparison. 
While Austin often talks as though he thinks that believing God will give us a Cadillac will result in a supernaturally gifted Cadillac, that isn't actually his message. God may not give us the Cadillac, or in fact, may never allow us to even get behind the wheel of our friend's Cadillac as a trial to improve us. He says God is more interested in changing you than he is in changing the circumstances, and the sooner you learn to cooperate with God, the sooner you'll get out of that mess, meaning whatever mess Mm -hmm. you're in in this life. Learning to accept what we're given and be grateful for it opens the doorway to God's gifts, or maybe, and here's where it gets existential, that is the gift. Yeah. My Puritan again. Mm-hmm. We must imagine Sisyphus happy. Or perhaps, digging deeper into the existentialism canon, we must, like Kierkegaard and Abraham, be willing to sacrifice Isaac with the expectation of keeping our son anyway. Mm-hmm. There's your theistic existentialist. Yeah, the only one. <laughs> yeah. and Well, and the first, so. Yeah. <laughs> the trouble with Austin is that while this legitimately spiritual and reasonably wise message is in his preaching, it can easily get lost in a tangle of seemingly contradictory points. Austin tells the story of a megachurch pastor who got off track and made some very poor decisions and lost everything. We can imagine what those might have been. Mm. Austin isn't explicit, but Sam, you can guess. Yes. (laughs) The pastor found himself in Brazil doing mission work where he met a Brazilian pastor. The Brazilian pastor had seen the American before in a vision 20 years earlier with a message from God that he would be the one to heal this man. And so he laid his hands on the American and the American pastor was spiritually healed. God, says Austin, knows the end of the story before it is written. It's a nice story, but it seems that God is the author of our fate in a way that belies any effort to change it. Long before this American had become a pastor, God already knew he'd wreck his ship and end up in Brazil in need of spiritual healing. But just a page later, Austin says... We should not sit back passively and expect God to do everything. No, we have to aggressively pursue our dreams. As my mother used to say, God helps those who help themselves. But is it fate or personal action that causes our success? Living with the expectation of God's favor both gets the cafeteria worker to the principal's desk and scores another woman in Austin's congregation a windfall inheritance from a relative she's never met. In Austin's telling, random luck and hard work overlap in ways that can perplex and mislead. And I don't have the answers to these contradictions, Sam, that is just baked into the theology. Yeah, that, I mean, that right there is just uh, another, I think, difficulty that I think non-theists have with just general kind of like the idea of God, the, the free will right. determinism argument. You know, it's just... It's just creeping its way back in there in the most <laughs> unlikely of places, you know? That's the one thing I like about theology, philosophy, all of that. The same logical issues arise in everything, all the time. <laughs> Some guy across the world who's never read a single bit of, like, atheistic Reddit will somehow think his way into going, well, how can there be free will and God knows the story? I don't really understand, right. you know? I mean, that becomes the the spiritual danger Mm -hmm. of Austin's work. I mean, I'm crediting him with, I think existentialism can be very deeply spiritual and Mm -hmm. can lead you on a very spiritual path. I found it to be, yeah. But when he says things like this, Mm -hmm. which raise those atheistic doubts, mm, 
because I don't think they're fully thought through. I mean, if I'm being honest, I just think he hasn't thought through the implications of thinking through this man's story in this way. Spiritualists who do a lot of prophecy, prophesying, uh, often talk about this in terms of they can see what can happen, but the human can always change the path. That doesn't mean that mm-hmm. their prediction isn't accurate if it changes it because you made a different decision. Yeah. They'll say, you know, if you do this, this will happen. If you do that, that will happen. Yeah. Uh, contemporary philosophers that talk about determinism and said instead of they they don't longer ask the question or it's less common to see the question um, if we have free will or not. It's just, well, how much do we have? <laughs> you know, you know, that that's yeah. how they kind of try to square it away. And here's, I think, where we'll really get Sam's goat here. The doctrine treads on the thinnest ice on this particular question when Austin talks about generational problems in terms of breaking the barriers of the past. He says poignantly, We dare not ignore the fact that prisoners beget prisoners. Abused children often become abusive parents. Children of divorced parents are more likely to have a failed marriage. Failure begets failure this is your systemic mm-hmm. problem yeah. it's nice to see this acknowledged but acknowledging this truth is not tantamount to excusing it according to austin we are each responsible regardless of the exigencies of our birth for lifting ourselves up by those bootstraps and breaking the cycle of criminality poverty or abuse this is also existentialism mm-hmm. at its core but that's much easier said than done isn't it yeah, I mean, like, if you just look at the crime data, like, the number one determining factor for criminality is impoverishment. Yeah. Like, we're seeing a lot of theft across the country with uh, inflation rates going up. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's mostly groceries. Yeah. And it's mostly, like, baby formula, baby supplies, like, all of that stuff. These, these to me, I think of people who would have never committed a crime before in their lives had they not gone, well, it's between, you know, stealing from Walmart or like me having diapers, right? Having you know, a, a child who's hungry, or so. And I like so when I when he says like, you know, criminals beget criminals. He does all that. I do. I sit there and I go, it's like, yes, yes, generational poverty, generational disenfranchisement. Like that is an observable thing. Like we have data on that. Like I can observe that in the world around me. Um, when but when he kind of callously goes, like you just need to kind of figure it out i i go it's really not that easy because while we have the generational stuff we also have the other stuff mm-hmm. that's like pounding it down compounding it and so that's where i find like we said at the beginning i do see some of all stuff as a helpful kind of theology and i find it healthy and you know humbling i also see him being callous yeah i mean the existentialist like somebody like sartre makes mm-hmm. us feel better i think because sartre would say rather than this that we have the terrible angst of our responsibility that yeah. we carry around with us all the time. Sartre acknowledges this as pain. He's like, as, this is hor- we are horribly <laughs> free. Yeah. yeah. He's like, we are difficult. so free, it sucks. <laughs> Whereas Austin's doing this kind of, you know, you know he's, he's that chipper friend, right? Constantly cheerleading you, even though you're having an, an awful day and you just yeah. want somebody to say, yes, this is awful. Yeah. Austin's saying, yeah, but tomorrow's going to be great. It reminds me of like my roommate 
like Rob, like a year ago, uh-huh. I was so broke. I was only eating like sauce packets. Oh Lord, man. Like I, I would like go into Taco Bell and like grab sauce packets or like anywhere and stuff like tell you what, uh, Wendy's has really great sauce. Sam did not reach out to the alchemical actors friends, so <laughs> No, there's like a pride thing like with I hear it all. That. Yeah. I, hear that. I was like eating sauce packets and like free crackers I could find and stuff like that. And then I'd go to work because I was working at like a really bad bar. I was mm-hmm. making no money and at least I'd get an employee meal there but like I told like my old one of my roommates about that and she was just like oh well you should just like work harder at your job <laughs> I was just like I was like you're right but like me like making the drinks as good as I can isn't like forcing more business in like right I was like he just like the owner just has bad alcohol he has bad food and he yells at people at the bar like yeah it, it, you're not in charge of marketing yeah so that's what it feels like yeah this is also the heart of uh critiques that label the prosperity doctrine as a spiritualization of capitalism Ooh, yeah i do believe it's necessary for an individual to make the choice to break the cycle i also believe as sam's saying that we owe people born into one of these cycles as much support as we as a society can reasonably provide. While Austin may agree with me on the support, he tends to emphasize the responsibility of the individual instead. Writing for the Journal of Economic Issues, Mary Wren argues somewhat ahistorically that the prosperity gospel is perfectly fitted for our neoliberal economy. By neoliberal, Wren means a system in which the state serves the market the stock market, and corporations, rather than the individual. That's a great definition. Actually, I think that's a really good definition. So simple, right? Yeah. (laughs) Gets right to the heart of it. The state guarantees that the market functions well, rather than that the individuals in the society enjoy things like full employment or the ability to pay for their basic needs. Both neoliberalism and the prosperity gospel place the responsibility on the individual to rise out of the welfare state. Given that faith in God can raise a person out of poverty, the state as a welfare-granting institution is actually no longer necessary. Prosperity replaces the movements of the markets, which are far beyond the actions of any single individual, with the favor of God, which the individual has some role in but nevertheless cannot control or even fully understand. The vast and incomprehensible economy is substituted with a vast and incomprehensible God. This substitution relieves the markets of the responsibility to reward individuals for hard work, allowing the neoliberal ideal to flourish without any moral check. Faith in God bear that burden instead. I mean, the markets are insane. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally insane. My wife and I, thinking about retirement, have done a bit of investing and, you know... If the Fed has a bad mood one day or says a word one way or the other, suddenly you're out a thousand dollars. But you shouldn't worry because you'll get it back the next day. Yeah. The markets don't make any sense. And a regular person, I'm a regular person, but you know, anybody looking at this, the economy is this. It feels like an Old Testament God sometimes. Mm -hmm. The stock market has, there are reasons that you can retroactively ascribe to things that are happening. Yeah. But it's often retroactive and you can't yeah. really get. We're sitting here like, sacrificing goats. Like, God, what do you want? I don't understand right. these numbers. Like, 
theoretically, every company is valued based on its ability to earn money. And you yeah. should invest in companies whose purpose or, you know, function you believe in. Mm-hmm. You know, like we like to invest in sustainable companies and solar panels because, you know, we're way environmentally conscious. Mm-hmm. But we also want to think that those companies are going to use our money wisely. And theoretically, yeah. that would result in the company's stock value going up. Yeah. But that's not how it works. No. I mean, it does in the long run. But in the short run, not even remotely does it work that way. I think one of my biggest issues, you know, like the idea that because the premise of like neoliberalism is like if the market is doing well and we as a state are engendering a good market, then the individual is doing well. You know, the premise is that if a if a good market exists, then a good individual exists. You know, that's like the kind of like very simple, like propositional logic, like all that nonsense. But the problem is they're assuming that a good, that the best way to tell that a market is good is if the stock market is good. Right. You know, the stock market, it to me, I, I think is like, it's just a part of the general market. There's the labor market, you know, there's all this other stuff. There's the global market, you know, mm-hmm. like commodities. Like, yeah. You know, it's like, it just seems weird to me that like, we could they could say like a neoliberal could you know propose like we have a good market because stocks are through the roof but like your average workers not having kids because they can't afford it they're not retiring it's like i well we need to do some more critical thinking here about this right a corporation can profit tremendously by cutting the labor force yeah if they can replace that labor force with x y and z yeah automation primarily or outsourcing to a country for cheaper sure or just not doing whatever that thing is because it mm-hmm. doesn't make enough money. Yeah. But is that good for the whole of society? Is that good for the worker? Often not. I mean, we're no. Not, we're not concerned with that if we're concerned about the value of the stock, pure and simple. But I think the analogy that she makes that the market's been replaced with a god, it does seem like it, that seems like an easy transition that a lot of Americans could make. Yeah. Uh, you know, Christianity is the number one religion in the country most Americans support and agree with the enterprise of capitalism they join really well perfect and and we certainly don't understand money and we don't understand god so what a correlation yeah i mean when we think about the last big crash the great recession how old were you when the great recession oh uh was was are you talking about the 2008 recession Mm -hmm. i see um i was 10 years old oh but so you remember yeah my dad lost his job yeah this was an event in which the people who understand money, right? Mm-hmm. The people who are supposed to know how all this worked made enormous mistakes and crashed the whole thing. Mm. So if they don't get it, how the hell are we supposed to get it? Yeah. We don't spend all our time thinking about money. I mean, people who are just trying to like, you know, my wife and I just put money away for retirement, which yeah. is most of us, honestly. Yeah. Most people have money on the market, whether they know it or not, in their 401k, and their pension plan. It's out there. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah. So in that way, if the market does well, the the middle class guy mm-hmm. generally will do better. But the market's always going to, in the long run, continue forward. Do whatever yeah. God's going to do whatever yeah. He wants in the short term. It's, it's because He's God. It's insane. Yeah. Like poor Job. We're just Job. Poor. Yeah, we are. We're Job. <laughs> Job in the hands of an angry market. So Wren's argument, in my opinion, misses the mark a bit from a historical standpoint. The prosperity gospel is not a direct reaction to or incarnation of neoliberal principles, although it describes them well. Neoliberalism as an approach to the economy emerged as a reaction to the movement to constrain and control the markets following the big crash that brought on the Great Depression. Here's a little fun history. Mm-hmm. 
The prosperity gospel's message about the relative morality of amassing wealth began much earlier, actually, in the 19th century, with Scottish-American steel magnate Andrew Carnegie's Gospel of Wealth and Baptist minister Russell Conwell's Acres of Diamonds sermon. Both Carnegie and Conwell were, were articulating a respect for the 19th century liberal economy, which the neoliberals hoped to revive after FDR had clamped down following the period of robber barons running amok with the nation's wealth and the 1929 market crash. It's a reasonable comparison to what happened mm -hmm. in 2008. It's dialectic. Y yes. Yeah. I'm going to put it another way, uh, for those of you who don't like talking about the economy, we went wild on our party yacht in the Gilded Age and before the Gilded Age, and then we crashed the ship in 1929 and Granddaddy Franklin scolded us and made us give up our yacht and buy a fishing trawler. And then when Grandpa had said everything right again and died, we went shopping for a new party yacht. That is the dialectic. There it is. <laughs> Conrail's Acres of Diamonds begins with a story of a preacher traveling down the Tigris and the Euphrates with an Arab guide who regaled him with stories he didn't always enjoy on the journey. One day, the guide told a story he reserved only for his particular friends, namely white people who traveled a long way to journey with him. In the story, a Buddhist, those white people, those damn white people. In the story, a Buddhist priest came to visit a wealthy Persian farmer and told him about the wealth to be had from diamonds, which, he said, were formed by drops of sunlight congealed on earth. The farmer, just enchanted by this tale, sold his farm and set out in search of those diamonds, desperate for greater wealth, and he spent all his money. And on reaching the coast of Spain, traveling and traveling, looking for these acres of diamonds, he finally threw himself into the ocean, a destitute suicide could never find the legendary acres of diamonds. The Buddhist priest came back to visit the man who had purchased the unfortunate farmer's farm. This new man had discovered strange shining rocks in a watering hole on the farm, and they turned out to be diamonds. Ooh. If the Persian farmer had only dug in his own land, rather than wandering across the continent in search of those acres, he would have discovered the diamonds he was after. It's a nice parable. Yeah. Pretty on the nose. But yeah. <laughs> Jesus, that's something Jesus would have said. Like, Jesus that's a very, said. like, Christian-y type thing. Like... If he was not talking about literal diamonds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it almost reminds me of, like, the parable of the prodigal son. Yeah. You know, who, like, spent his father's wealth. Except he didn't get to go back. Oh, yeah. He just uh, died, right? Well, this guy died in the ocean, yeah. But the second farmer got his reward. Yeah. Yeah. Bad case scenario. <laughs> not, not what you want to have happen to you. Austin actually tells his own version of this story about a man on a fancy train. It's also impossible to know whether any of Austin's stories are true or if he's just riffing on his ideas. Yeah, it doesn't matter to the reader or the listener. In Austin's version, the man scrimps and saves to pay for an expensive cross-continental train ticket. Every night, the other passengers go for a terrific meal in the dining car, and this man stays to eat cheese and crackers, unable to afford the fancy food, like Sam with his packets. Yeah. One day, a fellow passenger asks why he doesn't join them for dinner, and the man explains he can't afford it. But, says his fellow passenger, the meals are included in the cost of the ticket. Oh. Well, I would that I would have done that. Yeah, I think I, would, I, would have I done think that I'm like too like <laughs> lower middle class to understand that concept. Yeah, I think I would have too, man. 
if I'm not getting a first class ticket, but he bought like I yeah. guess it's like the idea is that it's a first class train ride. The whole train ride is first class. Dang. So for Ostein, this untaken meal is supernatural. It's the favor of God. We live with the favor of God buried in our yard, and we need only walk out there and dig it up. Oh. You see? It, yeah, this is a similar logic that I hear. Yeah. So in a way, it can it gives more Jesusy that in that mm-hmm. in that way. For Conwell, the acres of diamonds are the individual's own talent, ingenuity, and perseverance. So there's a bit of a shift there. Uh, if we're going back historically... Big shift. Yeah, it's your hidden skills. It's your skills that you have, your ability to do this thing. Those are the diamonds you refuse to unearth mm. when you sit around and feel bad for yourself. So many metaphors. Now then, I say again, the opportunity to get rich, to attain great wealth, is here in Philadelphia now. Within the reach of almost every man and woman who hears me speak tonight, and I mean just what I say, I say you ought to get rich, and it is your duty to get rich. Money is power, and you ought to be reasonably ambitious to have it. You ought because you can do more good with it than you could do without it. If you can honestly attain unto riches in Philadelphia, it is your Christian and godly duty to do so. While we should sympathize with God's poor that is, those who cannot help themselves, let us remember there is not a poor person in the United States who was not made poor by his shortcomings or by the shortcomings of someone else. It is all wrong to be poor. Anyhow, well, do I know that there are some things higher and grander than gold? Love is the grandest thing on God's earth, but fortunate the lover who has plenty of money. Let every man or woman here If you never hear me again, remember this, that if you wish to be great at all, you must begin here where you are, what you are in Philadelphia now. It's tough to be in Philadelphia anytime. And I I grew up right outside of Philadelphia, so I I know what I'm talking about. Go birds to our Philadelphia listeners. (laughs) Damn straight. Bibles cost money, says Conwell, as do churches. Money is only evil if it is unearned and if it is used without a sense of Christian ethics. He's calling out a certain hypocrisy here. Mm-hmm. I mean, the church can, uh, you know, value poverty and talk a mean a blue streak about poverty, but it's mm-hmm. true. Bibles cost money and churches cost money, and none of this yeah. gets done without paying the bills. While Conwell doesn't get into the supernaturalism of modern prosperity preachers like Austin, he makes the case that it is right and good and pragmatic to aspire to wealth and greatness, and poverty is a kind of sin. Austin is more gentle on this point than Conwell, but they both lay the responsibility for rising out of poverty on the shoulders of the poor. Hmm. Austin also seems reluctant, and this will not surprise any of you at all, to discuss Jesus' ministry very much at all. Listen to this. Austin much prefers the Old Testament with its literal kings to the New Testament with its spiritual king, and almost never quotes Jesus of Nazareth directly. He likes to talk about King David, who rose from poverty to command a nation and live in a palace, and also Noah and Job, tested by God, but in the version that we read, restored to wealth and prosperity, uh, canonically. Mm -hmm. Uh, Although I think uh, it's Young who points out that there is an older story of Job where God just leaves him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we have older manuscripts. Yeah, a much deeper uh, spiritual meaning to God just walking off and saying, ah, all right then. You've been tested. I'm <laughs> You've done. You've been tested. And Enjoy that. We're done now. Yeah. Good luck with this mess. 
Of the nearly 150 biblical citations in your life now, only 15 come from the Gospels, or just about 10%. Think about that. 90% of all his biblical quotations outside of the Gospels. As a Christian. Yes, Christian pastor. He's because it's practically I, a rabbi. As I say, because like they just hand out, they won't even hand out whole Bibles sometimes. They'll be like, "Here's the New Testament. Get out of here. You need this." Or like, yeah, the Gideon's is just the four four first books. Yeah, right? yeah. And then they'll have like Psalms in there because like that's oh, nice. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Psalms are nice. So why would Austin spend so little time talking about Jesus? Perhaps because Austin is a millionaire many times over, and Jesus taught that it was easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Yes, sir. Than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Which you started out with today, right? So, yeah. According to Luke, Jesus sent his disciples out to preach, taking no staff, no money, no bread, and no extra tunic. Yes, I said on the last episode, this bit about the staff is uh, under as disputed between the gospel writers, but you get the point. They were to live off the charity of their hosts and offer healing in return. Jesus was a working class kid, and no gospel records him amassing any material wealth whatsoever in a rage. He threw the money changers out of the temple. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Consciously or not, Austin doesn't spend much time discussing Jesus because the very image of Jesus, let alone his message, contradicts the material prosperity promised by Austin's seven steps. I wish there were more to say on this, but the contradictions within Christian prosperity doesn't, don't get much more obvious than the literal example of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what are you going to do, bro? A poor man in sandals, wandering around with no stuff. All about community, loving people, supporting them, hanging out. You know, yeah. you, I scratch your back, you scratch. It's like, to me, and this is like, this is definitely like, chalking up to something that it wasn't because, you know, this is back then, I don't have concepts in my brain that are similar. <laughs> but it feels like a small, like small working town where everyone helps each other out we we give charity back and forth to one another you know to me it seems so much different than like the huge like corporate enterprise mm. like jesus feels blue collar right. osteen feels white collar and right. there's like a disconnect there you he know literally what I mean? can't know his million viewers right yeah on tv or is, is forty thousand parishioners can you know forty thousand yeah. parishioners you know i know a few hundred of our discord listeners but i can't know you know the tens of thousands who subscribe to the show yeah I mean, there's just a limit mm -hmm. so between conwell and austin came the healing revival movement of the 1940s and 1950s and these revivalist preachers weren't so shy about connecting jesus and the new testament directly with the prosperity message despite jesus's warnings to the rich man this may have been in part because they were also very interested in laying on of hands healing which was far more on brand as far as jesus is concerned mm -hmm. yeah I say many times on the show, the, one of the few things we know historically about Jesus is that Jesus performed miracles. The healing revival movement took place mostly in tents. It helped to spur the popularity of the evangelical and charismatic Christianity. William Branham initiated the revival, and its most famous preacher was Oral Roberts, for whom the university, by the way, is named. Roberts was a pioneer of televangelism and helped to popularize the prosperity gospel as part of a package of charismatic beliefs, including healing. Roberts hosted meetings in a tent that could accommodate 3,000, but his gatherings grew as large as 15,000 in the latter half of the 1950s when his healing services began to appear on television. 
He believed that disease was mostly caused by demons, and that by laying his right hand on the believers, he could cast the demons and the diseases out of them. That would be great for my cold right now. Yeah. Fellow preacher Gordon Lindsay published a periodical called The Voice of Healing that served to draw the healing revival movement together and publicize testimonials of believers miraculously healed. In 1960, it was Lindsay who published God's Master Key to Prosperity, detailing many of the movement's doctrines related to prosperity. So while Oral Roberts is the celebrity, this is my man with some documentary mm -hmm. evidence that I can sink my teeth into. For healing revivalists, God wanted his people to be healthy and wealthy and belief was a means to achieve both. Lindsay promised that God would provide a kind of social security or financial protection for those who believed in him and tithed. Ugh. Pay a little in <laughs> yeah, and get prosperity out. This is where this all begins, really. It's like tithing is the stock market. <laughs> it, 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 yeah, it really is. It's the spiritual stock market. It's the spiritual stock market. With a physical market. currency. Over time, this became the hallmark of predatory prosperity televangelists, why Sam is groaning, asking mm -hmm. people to send their last dollar in to support the ministry on the promise that believers would get rich. Tithe to the Lord, that is, give a portion of your profits to God, and God will reward you. Lindsay related the story of Perry Hayden, who planted a four by eight rectangle of wheat and tithed a tenth of, uh, to the local Quaker church, and then he replanted the rest. Henry Ford caught wind of this experiment and provided the land as the field grew. After five years, the field expanded to 230 acres. So the idea is that because mm -hmm. he's tithing that tenth, God keeps rewarding him with yeah. more wheat or the ability to purchase more wheat and therefore reap a larger mm -hmm. harvest. Lindsay's evidence also rests in part on his own parents' experience during the Depression. His parents tithed consistently to the church, even though they were of modest Then came means. the days of the Great Depression that affected America as no other depression ever had. In those days, when a man lost his job, it was extremely difficult to find another. Many of our neighbors and friends suffered severely during those years of unemployment and hard times. But during that time, God's blessing rested upon my parents. Father never lost a day at his job. He was able to pay off the mortgage on his home. His mother, sick with stomach cancer, refused surgery and resorted to prayer. After vomiting up the cancer, she lived another 20 years after her diagnosis. I don't know if I believe that. <laughs> that she had stomach cancer? I would believe that she had stomach cancer. I just wouldn't believe that she vomited it up. Oh. <laughs> I, like, I just don't... I, I'm not, like, a biologist or, like... <laughs> A doctor, but I just don't think that's how cancer is, works. Is that, is, that, is that possible? Well, she could have had something else. Actually, you know, I don't believe she. Had, I believe she was sick. I believe it was with something other than stomach cancer, though. Okay, I accept that. And then she did cure herself by vomiting it up. This could be a very disgusting thing to write into us about. So by all means, get on the Discord, and then if I get nauseous, I'll stop reading it. I'll give you my personal phone number. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Careful. I know. The, uh... <laughs> The tithing solution didn't work so well during the days of Jesus' ministry and the early church, says Lindsay, because the apostles just gave everything away in order to live communally. But communes were only for emergencies, not for regular living. Early Christians were under constant threat of death, which necessitated them following Jesus' request to give up everything and join the cause. But Jesus said men should tithe. In Matthew, Jesus told the Pharisees that they tithe but ignore the weightier matters of the law, judgment, and mercy. Jesus said, these men ought to tithe and also tend to these additional spiritual issues. So, 
Jesus is pro-tithing, says Lindsay anyway. Echoing Conwell's Acres of Diamonds, he says that all of Jesus's pronouncements against the rich are really about separating rich people who only seek comfort and luxury from good rich people who want to do good with their money. Good and bad. God needs men today. Men who can give largely to the cause of God. But these must be dedicated men. They must be unawed by their own wealth, humble and consecrated to the entire will of God. Men who regard themselves not the owners, but the stewards of the temporal blessing God has entrusted to them. Hmm. <laughs> Letting Sam sit on that for a second. I had a hot take. I'm not going to say it. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I mean, the Bezoses of the world, they're going to give all their money away. The uh, Gateses of the world. No, they give money away to charity firms that they own and can liquidate <laughs> back into their bank accounts, and then they can write it off in their taxes. So, yeah. Not like, exactly. That's not a If take. I'm a billionaire, I'm going to own a few charities because I can then donate to the charities I own. Like, I can also donate money into like the four other wallets i have in my closet right well i mean you can't yeah yeah i can't i'm just saying it's the <laughs> but same if thing. you were such a guy yeah yeah austin is very much the inheritor of a long tradition but the message has shifted with the times while conwell's acres of diamonds promised that material success was not necessarily anti-christian given all the good that money could do today this message is more palatable at least in a religious context, with an element of new thought supernaturalism to give it meaning in a charismatic context. And while Lindsay was unabashed in interpreting Jesus to be a fan of generous tithing and a promiser of great material prosperity, Austin, at least in his first and most popular book, appears to tacitly acknowledge that this is a strained reading of the New Testament, and so leaves Jesus' words in Mark out of his theology. The balance between asceticism and worldly prosperity is a difficult one, friends. It's a difficult one to strike in religious traditions, both within and beyond Judeo-Christianity. While it's not good to get caught up in the pursuit of the impermanent things of this world, it's also not especially easy to get by without a roof and a regular source of food and water and entertainment. The Buddha found that self-deprivation could become an impediment on the path to enlightenment, and Jesus himself seemed to enjoy food and wine and the occasional wedding. And so... The prosperity gospel works in the contradictions wrought by asceticism by charting the path to the opposite extreme for good or for ill. Final thoughts, Shepherd of the Verst. Um I think I think what is it? Prosperity gospel is an easy theological belief to get to if you're an American and a Christian. Right, tell me about this. I think it's not hard, especially if you're evangelical, maybe specifically like Protestant evangelical. And ignore all these things I talked about in the Gospels. Yeah. It's just like, I mean, to me, like the idea that, what is it, if you are a good believer and you are blessed is a very, very common idea. And if we start there and we don't ask how we got this idea, you know, like most Christians don't ask how we got that idea. They don't sit there and go, well, how do I know? Like, you know, because when they start doing that, you end up like me. You know what I mean? So it's really easy for you to sit there and go, well, if God, if all blessings are from God and I can't take credit for it and I follow that kind of like, you know, there was plenty of times in Young Life meetings where people would go like, it's like, oh, really nice job. And then it would almost be like a social cue for you to go, well, it wasn't me. It was Christ. You know, like it, they like worked like their butts off on a huge project for the organization and did like really good stuff. Like 
if it's natural to say, if I am a good believer, I have faith and I work for God, I will be rewarded. You know, it's also very easy for you to sit there and go, all right, the more I believe, the more stuff I'll get. You know, it's very easy for you to also go, then go, oh, you don't have any stuff? Well, <laughs> sir, <laughs> I'm going to moralize, I'm going to moralize this a whole bunch. And now poverty is no longer, you know, just like a system issue, an economy issue. It's no longer an issue about like markets or it's no longer an issue about like opportunity it's an issue about how how good of a person you are in the eyes of Christians. And so for me, it's a very easy idea for a lot of Christians to get to. I mean, a lot of Christians are conservative. And I know last time I was on here, I railed on conservatives. I will try to avoid that. <laughs> okay. um, but like conservatives generally have this like pull yourself up by your bootstraps attitude. You know, it just seems that prosperity gospel is an easy thing to fall into, that these contradictions are easily ignored because it's already fitting ni nicely into your political views, your economic views. It's already the next step in your theological views. It fits real nicely together and it's comfortable. So, that's the one thing I, I'm worried about prosperity also because I can see it doing a lot of harm, mainly in the moralization of poverty. If we are to say that being impoverished is a moral problem, mainly that you are immoral, you know, you have done things immoral to deserve this, it, it, it really stops the conversation less about, like, helping impoverished people, which I see in Christ. I see Christ going, hey, make sure to help, like, your, your, your poor people out there, man. Right, like, because he's saying it is a moral problem. Yeah, but the moral problem is on the, uh, the, the 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 haves, not the have-nots. Yeah, it is a moral problem to be a have with have-nots around you. Yeah, who you are not being served or whose society is not bolstering mm -hmm. to some extent. I'm reminded of Brecht's uh, "Good Person" of Szechuan, uh, and which always I think gets to the core of this conservative v liberal economic ideology. Mm -hmm. And in this story, there's a woman, Shui, Shui Ta, I think is, is her name. And uh, she ends up with all this money. Uh, and she doesn't know what to do with it. She wants to help all her friends. She used to be poor. Mm -hmm. uh, so she invites all her friends into her house and she's going to feed them and take care of them. But they tear her house apart uh, and, and she's miserable uh, and, and she, does, she can't take care of all these people. Um, but she's, she's sort of meek. So she invents another personality, uh, Shui Ta. And this second personality kicks everybody out of the house. And makes mm -hmm. them leave. Um, and then when they're miserable again out on the street, uh, the first personality comes along and invites them back into the house. And, and it's sort of the, you know, Brecht this, is this riffing duel. on. Yeah, I mean, the conservative viewpoint, there's something to be said. I personally think that the moral hazard is in not taking care of people who are impoverished through no fault of, fault of their own. I, mm -hmm. I think that's where my moral hazard lies. Um, and in not being part of a society that does that. But I see the moral hazard in... Maybe not. Yeah, in in uh, giving it away without the expectation that uh, I don't know. Maybe I don't see the moral hazard, but uh, <laughs> I yeah. mean, it's it's the notion that the state or the individual that the state can be taken advantage of. I mean, I think that's the conservative yeah. word is that the state can be taken advantage of. Yeah, and I think what is it? The liberal ideology is like, well, the state should be there to help people, and to some extent, I agree with that. I didn't realize this was going to become so political. That's I mean, all right. I think we're talking pretty openly about it. I'm trying to play both sides of the field yeah. here. I, and like, and like the liberal goes like, well, the state's there to help people. And to some extent, I agree. But at the same time, as someone who occupies alternative political areas, 
I really don't agree with like a lot of high-end existence of the state. Mm-hmm. My issue no longer is with if the state has is giving people this, if the state isn't giving people that. My issue is with who's in control, who has the power. I'm far more concerned with power dynamics and more of like a community ownership. I, I don't like hierarchy that much, limited hierarchy. So to me, it's like, if the conservative comes to me and is like, I don't want the state to be taken advantage of. And if the liberal comes to me and says, well, the state ought to help people, I will go, yes, I agree with both of you. Mm-hmm. There's there's a there's an alternative to just, you know, state giving money, state not giving money. You know, this could just be limited state people people's ownership, not individual ownership. Like that that, you know, that's for me, I think a, a nicer solution. But, you know, with I, I'm trying to figure out a way to bring this back to prosperity gospel. It's all right. Yeah. I, I, let's talk about student loans for a second, because I think it gets to the heart of this. Oh, yeah. I mean, in this country, in the United States, uh, our 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 president uh, has chosen to forgive student loans up to 20000 I think. Is that yeah. Right? It's going to be like, if you have anything more than like, you're like getting like, if you have something about, you're getting like 10000 taken away. Yeah. If it, it's like a real like ranked kind yeah. of system. I mean, there's a point to me at which... I think people who are not able to pay back the loans, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on board with the forgiveness for a couple of reasons. First of all, if you were sold a junk education and you have loans on that junk education, and by that I do not mean a philosophy degree from a four-year institution, I mean a literal junk education from a for-profit institution. Mm-hmm. I also think if you got a four-year degree from a college institution and you're in a position where you can't repay that loan uh, because of your work circumstances, that that's also fine for loan forgiveness because I think that the state should have been supporting your education in the first place, not giving you loans. I think yeah. that you have a right to that education, especially yeah. at a state institution up to a point. I'm very much in favor of education as a human right. Absolutely. At the college level, for sure. Yeah. All the way up. I mean, that's why I do the work I do at this place that where I teach. But uh, if you're a you know doctor, a lawyer, whatever, if you're making $199,000 a year and you can pay back the loan, I did pay back my loans. So that's where I start to say, well, why? Yeah. Why are you getting any forgiveness at all when I made the responsible choice instead of going to Hawaii and paid off my loans? I think in a certain mm-hmm. way that, but you know, the Democrats have been not so careful in the way they've at least marketed this to the public language is half the battle of politics yeah um i think was it i don't have very much federal loans so me personally i'm not going to get hardly anything if it it goes through the courts because you didn't take them out yeah because i I have a twin sister Uh and um what had happened was we had taken out federal loans for her college. I was going here and I was paying out of pocket at mm-hmm. Chesapeake Community College because we were cheap. Yeah, well, I mean, I was making good money as a as a what is it bartender server on Ken Island, and you know that was back when like serving was good. Right now, it's not good right now, um, and so I could afford to you know save up money, work over the summer, a payoff, you know, you know all this, and then like Christmas would roll around, I get all these Christmas tips. I could pay off half my next tuition, you know, mm-hmm. I could just keep doing that for the three years that I was here. And then I went, but so then when I went to uh, Salisbury, um, my sister had already been taking out federal loans with my parents as like, I, I, I what is it there? I was like the default kind of person. Um, the feds wouldn't give me any money hmm. because my parents had already 
set themselves up as like it's a strange system because yeah. you're the one who carries the debt yeah not your parents but they're like they are I, I i forget what the word is essentially if molly can't my sister can't pay it it falls on my parents but because they'd already filled that with my the fed was like nope so i had to take out a bunch of uh student loans privately and i've actually been paying them yeah. um since i graduated mm-hmm. um so and i graduated like first year of covid so that was like two years ago. i've been paying my loans and it's quite a quite a sizable it's a gun um, to the head in yeah a way. it's quite a sizable payment and it's the reason i don't have a savings yeah it's the reason that like i don't have you know a lot of financial security and it was the reason i was eating sauce packets mm-hmm. to pay the loans to pay my loans because i knew what is it i wanted i have the dream of owning a house in this market but i you know the credit system it's you know implied there i didn't want to ruin my own credit um, there was also that sort of personal feeling of like, oh, well, I took these loans out. I ought to pay them. You're but a good Protestant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am the good Protestant. It's, it's sticking with me for life. But yeah, Sally May is like right now ruining my financial life, mm. you know, and with rent going up, it's just like this stuff. If I, my federal loans haven't even kicked in yet. I have like 12K in federal loans. Yeah. And then like, that's just another thing where I'm like sweating because like right now with inflation, um, People aren't going out to eat as much, which is my livelihood as a yeah. bartender. People aren't going out to drink as much. And when they do, they don't tip. I get stiffed on probably 30% of my bills. In Let the me salt. say this. If you cannot afford to tip, you cannot afford to eat out. So, or yeah, drink I, out. Yeah. it's Stay home. It's like, and like, I work at like a working man's bar. Like, you can get a draft like Coors or Miller Lite for 250 Yeah, it's cheap. It's like, come on, man. Like, it's literally like... It costs them less money to buy kegs of beer at that place than it is to, like, keep the water running. Yeah. So, I, at some point, like, I am sitting there, I was like, there's a lot of people like me who got out of college in COVID and are, like, struggling to find a job because the job market's all screwy. And, like, even if it wasn't, like, forgiveness, like, if he could just, ex- like, for me, and I think a lot of people my age, we just, like, if he could just extend the, like period of you don't have to pay back just like so i can get on my feet man i think also forgive interest though in that time period yeah in all fairness yeah i know interest hasn't been accruing um but but i get what you're saying like if i if i was a lawyer right now like making 190k i would have no honestly if someone said you have to pay your your loans i'd be like okay you should yeah it was like okay i can totally do that yeah but if someone's looking at me right now i was like you need to pay your loans i was like i'll give you what i can man like so for me, loans are a tricky thing. But when we look at the, I'm a data guy, philosophy degree. I like looking at the objects and stuff. Um, we haven't been paying our loans for like three and a half years. Mm-hmm. The economy hasn't crashed. Right. You know, it hasn't fallen apart. Maybe it's okay if we forgive them, mm-hmm. you know? And then when we look at like what's predicted to happen, if I don't have like, if I don't have to pay my loans, it's a good chunk of money every month that I just have. I can go spend that money, you know, on the, in the economy, in the economy, instead of like going into some, was it Sally Mae's bank account and they're not throwing that money into the economy. No. Yeah. I mean, the kind of person who deserves the forgiveness is the kind of person who will actually use the money in the world. Yeah. And like, that's for me, it's all about social good. Mm -hmm. We are social creatures. Um, I think community, that's why I love religion. Oh my gosh. When I left religion, I had no idea how isolating it would be mm-hmm. oh my gosh my girlfriend talks about it all the time since she deconstructed she's like i have no i had no idea how isolating 
this would be. And, you know, but I'm going to tie it back into prosperity gospel. Go ahead. Do it. I think prosperity gospel can be one of the most isolating theological ideas that the church can kind of peddle. Because? It, because it isolates the poor. I I can't tell you how many times I went to church when I was poor and I heard prosperity gospel stuff and I left feeling like a piece of garbage and like I never wanted to come back to that community space again. You're not a member of the congregation. You're I'm not, an outsider. Yeah. I was like, to me, I'm sitting there in like, what is it? Shoes I've had for three years, like Walmart brand, everything. Mm-hmm. And everyone who's in the in group is like the classic Maryland lacrosse player with Sperry's and like, uh, you know, nice clothes and like these like pastel colors. And like all of a sudden it, it, it felt like to me, and I think like it would feel like to a lot of people who are struggling financially to be a Christian or to be a member of the community, that church community, you need to be rich. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And until you're rich, they don't want to talk to you, man. Cause you're a moral problem. What sins have you committed to make you poor? What sins have you committed? That'll make me start to commit if I hang out with you. You know what I mean? So that, that, is an isolating feeling. Um, I didn't want to go back to that church. I didn't want to go back to that community. Not inclusive. Not inclusive. In terms of class. In ter- yeah, class. I mean, we can talk about the other ways. No, inclusive. we have. <laughs> we have. But, yeah. And I, I do agree with you at the beginning. Joel has a nice message. I think what he's saying right there, this kind of like, well, you know, work at it. You know, takes, you know, take stock of yourself, what's going on work at it. God's got you. Where you're supposed to be is where God's got you. It's a comforting feeling to be the hands of a creator that we say is nice and loving. But when we we take it further and further and we reach its logical conclusion, I all it's left is people like me who feel isolated, mm-hmm. who don't want to go back to church and like that doesn't seem like that's the goal of Christianity. Not in my opinion. Not mine. Yeah. But who knows what the goal is? Somewhere between Paul, Matthew, Jesus, James. <laughs> Somewhere. Yeah. There's a nugget, yes. you know, and maybe we just got to work for it. Mm-hmm. Oh, heaven forfend that we work and think through our theology. My goodness. I hereby adjourn and declare closed this meeting of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors until such a time as we get together and do it again. My name again was Rob C. Thompson, joined by Sam Steen, Shepherd of the Verst. Thank you guys so much. This was awesome. Thank you, Rob. Always a pleasure, Sam. Hope you start to feel better. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. I, I need to get that right hand on my forehead or maybe heal myself. If I, I was in arm's reach, I, okay, yeah, maybe I'd do I'll, it for you. You can spiritually heal me. Yeah, I, I do perform spiritual. I have performed spiritual healing. I've, I've practiced spiritual healing. I don't know if I can do it on myself. I met a guy in New York who uh, tried to fix my jaw. How did it go? It was in uh, Times Square. Oh, no. And he just kind of like shook his hands around it and went, wait a couple days, brother. And? And then he asked for some money. <laughs> You know what? He did some labor, so he got 10 bucks from me. Okay. And did you feel better? No. It's been hurting. My jaw has been hurting this entire podcast. And on that note, we'll be back next time with our first of a two-part series on Christian sex ed here on A Call Confessions.